Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 8? Actually, last week in our study in John's Gospel, we did enter into John chapter 8 and uh, came across the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery, which we looked at last time. And uh, I believe she was set up by the scribes and Pharisees who wanted to trap Jesus if they caught her in the very act, verse 4. Then where was the man? The law of Moses said that both the man and woman caught uh, or involved in adultery were to be stoned. Uh, obviously, they didn't bring the man, but they brought the woman. And uh, you can read about that. Go online and listen to the, series, the uh, study. But uh, that opened the chapter and gave rise to our first main point, the hateful uh, condemnation. The hateful condemnation is these hateful leaders uh, used a woman as a pawn to condemn her to get to Jesus. Now starting with verse 12 and running through the end of, the, of chapter 8, we have our second main point, which I'm calling the heated confrontation. Now before we actually get into the text, let me give you the setting in which this confrontation takes place because it is significant to our understanding of the passage. The seven-day Feast of Tabernacles has just come to an end. However, the day after wasn't technically part of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles as laid out by God in Leviticus 23. But the eighth day, God said, was a special day. It was called the Shemi Tzeret, which uh, is just, was a special Sabbath, a high holy day, a special Sabbath. And that brought many Jews who were still in town for the Feast of Tabernacles back to the temple to worship the Lord. We're told in verse 20, Jesus was in the temple treasury teaching. Let me just say this. In the New Testament, there are two words translated temple in the Greek. The actual temple proper was called naos, and it was relatively a relatively small building in comparison to the whole temple area. The temple proper, of course, contained the holy place, and then the holy of holies into which only the high priest could enter, and then only once a day, one day a year on the great day of atonement, Yom Kippur. But it sat, the temple proper sat on top of Mount Moriah, which is still called the Temple Mount to this day. Now, the temple proper, or Nas, was surrounded by 33 acres, which together were called the temple precincts. And the Greek word for the entire area was uh, Hiron. The area of the temple precincts closest to the temple proper consisted of a series of successive and ascending courtyards that led from what we would call ground level all the way up to the temple mount where the actual temple building sat. If we started from the top, the Temple Mount, and worked our way down, the courtyards would, would, go, would go like this. The uppermost courtyard, again, where the Temple building sat, was called the Court of the Priests. It was called the Court of the Priests because only the Jewish priests could enter into this area. It was in this court that the priests would, of course, offer sacrifices to God on the brazen altar and then wash in one of the uh, lavers, which were uh, wash basins, before entering into the holy place, that first compartment in the temple proper. Uh, as they entered into the holy place, to the right you have the table of showbread, to the left the menorah, 
And then straight ahead, before you entered the veil into the Holy of Holies, there was a small golden altar called the Altar of Incense. And on that altar, the priests would burn incense, which represented the prayers of God's people. So it was a very holy place. If you came down to the next level, you had to walk down uh, uh, several steps until you came to the next court, which was called the Court of the Israelites. And it was in this court that the Jewish men, and only the Jewish men, assembled for the temple services. From the court of the Israelites, you descended several more steps and came to the court of the women. Now, into this court, any Jew could enter, but it was called the court of the women because this was as far as a Jewish woman could go, no farther. From the court of the women, you descended five steps to a level area on which there was erected a five-foot stone barricade that went around the entire temple enclosure. And then from that level, there were 14 more steps that descended to ground level to the court of the Gentiles, also known as the outer court. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, that five-foot stone wall that separated the court of the women, or in other words, the court of the Jews, from the court of the Gentiles had a sign, uh, one sign in many locations all said the same thing, but had signs all around this stone barricade at various intervals stating that no foreigner, no Gentile, was permitted to go any further. Those signs read, and I'm quoting, no Gentile may enter, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death, end quote. Guys, that wall that separated Jew and Gentile was a visible reminder of the separation between the Jews who were God's covenant people and then the Gentiles who were outside the covenant people of God. Now you have to understand, because somebody asked me this after first service, um, but it was a very deliberate thing. Think about it. Who was caught? This was religion. Religion. And in religion, you have those who are holier and closer to God than others. So who was closest to God? Who was closest to the temple building itself that contained the throne of God? The priests, right? Jewish priests. The next group that were uh, not as close as the priests, but still close, were the Jewish men. The Jewish women, well, they were closer to the Gentiles, but they were a little far removed because women, you know, every morning a Jewish rabbi would get up and thank God for three things, that he was not born a, uh, a slave, a woman, or a Gentile. That's what they thought about you gals. So women, but Jewish women, you know, they were kind of close to God, of course. Uh, but not as close as the men, and the men not as close as the priests. And then, because you had these, so you had these several steps down to each level, right? Then you had this monumental descent from where the court of the women were all the way to ground level where the court of the Gentiles sat, which meant the Gentiles were really removed from God, but they understood that God promised Abraham that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed, which meant Gentiles. So they had the outer court, and priests were always to be there so that Gentile seekers of the God of Israel could have their questions answered and maybe proselytize to the Jewish faith, right? 
course, it was in the outer court that they corrupted it with the, the money changers and the selling of animals. So the first impression the Gentile seeker got was this corruption going on, and Jesus condemned it and chased everyone out of that area. It's supposed to be a holy place, a place where Gentiles could seek the God of Israel, and so on. Now, Paul the Apostle tells us in Ephesians 2.15 that God has torn down the middle wall of partition, right? That separated Jew and Gentile, and has from the two made one new man, body of Christ, from both. So now, Jew and Gentile in Christ are the same. And they all, because now we're all a kingdom of priests, right? Any one of us can come into the Holy of Holies, in a sense, into the very presence of God boldly because of Christ. And so a beautiful imagery Paul brings out. Now, once again, guys, we are told in verse 20 that John 8 takes place in the temple treasury where Jesus had been teaching and where, we're told in verse 13, he was confronted by the Pharisees, maybe some others in the Jewish leadership who hated him. Pharisees are only named because they were, in this instance, the most the predominant antagonists uh, that day. Uh, there might have been others, though, chief, scribes, chief priests, and some others. But they, Pharisees were the dominant group that day. That's why they're uh, no doubt singled out. Uh, but it's no accident, and don't miss this. It's no accident that the Holy Spirit points this fact out to us, that Jesus was teaching in the court of the women, in the temple treasury. Because this place is going to become the most significant thing in this entire passage. It was in the court of the women where the temple treasury was located. The court of the women was a massive place because there all Jews could gather, men and women. And therefore they had different things that took place in the court of the women, special events and things, because it was, and that's why they made it the largest court of any of them, because it contained the most people. But the court of the women was a very large court with colonnades going all around it. Uh, the the uh, part of it uh, called the, the temple treasury consisted of walls that had 13 giant trumpet-shaped bronze money boxes, chests, receptacles, call them what you will. But they were objects that people could put money into, coins, who wanted to give an offering to God. Let me kind of break it down for you. Because the trumpets had different designations. Trumpets 1 and 2 was where the Jewish people paid their temple tax, a yearly tax of a half shekel of silver that every adult Jew was required by law to pay, and that went for the upkeep of the temple. Trumpets 3 and 4 were where you put your money if you were buying pigeons to offer to God. Why pigeons? Because God said in the law, if a person was too poor to afford a lamb or a goat to atone for their sins, they could bring two pigeons to God to offer for the atonement of their sins. But also, in the law, women who had just given birth had to make an offering of two pigeons. It was called an offering of purification to purify that mother ceremonially after childbirth. Trumpet number five was where you put the money if you wanted to buy wood to keep the fire of the brazen or altar of sacrifice burning. So if you want to keep the fire burning, I want to do that. I want to keep the fire burning. I want to give some money into trumpet five, okay? Trumpet six 
It was where you put your money if you wanted to buy incense uh, that went into the worship of God in the temple area. Incense, of course, in Scripture is a type of, of prayer, all right? Trumpet 7 was where you put the money if you wanted to go, if you wanted to, go uh, to the upkeep of the gold vessels or different other utensils uh, that were used in the worship of God. They had golden shovels and pans and forks and all kinds of things that went into the worship of God. They wore out. And so if you wanted to donate money so that these implements could be uh, refurbished or repurchased, or not repurchased, but remade, then you would give your money into that particular uh, trumpet, trumpet 7. And then, of course, trumpets 8 through 13 was where you put any money that you wanted to give to God that you didn't really care where it went. Just a general uh, offering to God. Use it for whatever you need it for and so on. Now, here's the thing. Again, these were trumpet-shaped receptacles, all right? And, of course, when people gave money to God in those days, the money had intrinsic value, not like our paper money, which has just got 20 bucks stamped on it, but doesn't really, it's, it has no intrinsic worth, right? It's a promissory note from the government. We promised to honor that for 20 bucks, all right? In those days, they didn't have that kind of system. So their, gold, their coins, silver, gold, bronze, uh, the different weights determine the different value. The... The least valuable coin back then was a mite. And the Greek word was leptin, which means thin. Remember how Jesus was sitting in the temple treasury area one day, watching people giving to God. And he saw a widow throw in two mites. Of course, they made no noise at all. They were so small. But Jesus saw it. He said she's given more than all of them because they gave out of their abundance, she out of her poverty. So all she had was two mites. But of course, those who were the hypocrites but wanted to show people how generous, pious, godly they were, they, they, of course, the Pharisees, of course, would, would tithe, were big into tithing. And so they would uh, no doubt have uh, valuable coins. And of course, the more valuable the coin, the heavier it was. And so they would walk over. Maybe they had five of these heavy coins in their hand. They would walk over to one of the trumpets, and they would throw them in hard. So they would go bang, bang, you know, five times in a row. People would look around and go, whoa, that sounded like a lot of money. And everyone would look, and there you are smiling. Oh, boy, is he a generous guy. Is he godly? And what did Jesus say? When you give to God, don't sound the trumpets like the hypocrites who do it because they want to be seen by men. When you give to God, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, all right? Keep it quiet. That's what that was all about. And so that was the temple treasury located in the middle of the court of the women. The place where Jesus was teaching is recorded in John 8. And once again, guys, that piece of information is going to be very important. In fact, probably the most important thing about this whole passage is we're about to see. So verse 12 then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, as we have said in previous studies, John's gospel is highly organized. He built it around seven miracles that led to seven discourses that culminated in seven I am statements. 
This is the second of the seven I am statements that John, that John built his gospel around. Of course, the phrase I am is the name of God. It was first expressed by him, God himself in uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. And as we said, remember, uh, when you think of these I am statements, think of uh, them as a name, I am, name of God, coupled with a description. So if you were going to uh, use that uh, to describe me, it would be like Phil Ballmeyer hyphen the pastor. Think of these I am statements in that way. I am, name of God, hyphen, the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the light of the world, John 8. I am, hyphen, the door, John 10, and so on. Each of these statements is a declaration of divinity since each of them begins with Jesus declaring himself to be the great I am in human form which is the theme of John's entire gospel. Check out chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John said, I'm writing these things to you that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so as we study John 8, understand that the whole chapter is built around Jesus' declaration of divinity, which led to a heated confrontation between himself and his enemies. That's really the underlying theme of what's going on here. Now, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, it would have immediately reminded these Jewish scholars, scribes, Pharisees, they were scholars. It would have immediately reminded these Jewish scholars how that in their own scriptures, the Lord God, Yahweh, was likened to light many times. I'll just read you a couple of passages to give you flavor. Psalm 27, verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 84, verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun, S-U-N, and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Of course, it was the Lord God Almighty who brought light into physical light into the universe, as recorded in Genesis 1, verse 3, when he said, and I love how the Hebrew actually translates it, let light, he said, let there be light. The Hebrew says, and light was. I love it. God said, let there be light, and light was. This, of course, was a truth. That the Jewish people understood and believed in with all their hearts that Yahweh was not only the source of light, listen, he was himself light. Every Jew believed that. And that's a truth that John, the apostle of a Jew, expressed in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him, Christ, and declare to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. And so when Jesus proclaimed himself to be the light of the world, think like a Jew now. He was claiming to be the God of Israel, listen, the radiant Shekinah glory. Now we know that, that his glory as God 
was veiled with humanity or flesh. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, Mark 9, Luke records it as well. When Jesus went up there, uh, for a little while he was turned, transformed, right, transfigured, Greek word metamorphosis, he was changed, and the glory that was his inwardly suddenly radiated, radiated forth outwardly, right? He became like the sun. Well, that's God. God is the transcendent uh, Shekinah glory. When Jesus comes the second time, he's not going to come veiled in humanity like we think. He said, I'm going to light the sky up with my second coming glory. Every eye will see me, right? But as we have already pointed out, the Feast of Tabernacles has just come to an end. The Feast of Tabernacles, again, was a seven-day feast that in part, in part, commemorated the children of Israel's 40-year journey in the wilderness. The feast began each morning with what was called the water libation ceremony, a ceremony that commemorated how God had provided water for their ancestors during their wilderness wanderings. The day began uh, at the time of the morning sacrifice. Each of the days of the Feast of Tabernacles began at the time of the morning sacrifice, where the high priest took a golden pitcher and led a procession of priests down to the pool of Siloam. The pitcher was then filled with water and carried back to the temple mount, where it was poured out on the altar, the altar of sacrifice, as an offering. That's what a libation is. It's an offering of praise. So they, offer, they started the day with a, a water libation ceremony, an offering of praise, thanking God, praising Him for His faithfulness and giving their ancestors life-giving water all those years. This was done once a day for the first six days of the feast. However, the seventh day of the feast was a great day of celebration known as the great Hosanna, and it climaxed the feast. On this day, the seventh day, the high priest marched around the altar seven times before pouring the water on the altar. And as we studied John 7, I believe at that very moment, at the very moment the high priest was pouring the water on the altar, at the very moment the feast reached its climax, the Lord Jesus Christ jumped up onto a rock or a table and cried out saying in John 7 verses 37 to 8, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this to the Jewish people to let them know that the water their ancestors drank all those years that kept them alive in the wilderness, it pointed to him. Of course, they drank physical literal water to maintain physical life. But now Jesus is saying that whole thing pointed to him. And if anyone wanted to have life forever, eternal life, they needed to come to him and drink. He was the water of life. And anyone who drank, of course, he's using that as a metaphor for to believe on. Anyone who came to him and believes on him would have eternal life. And so, guys, that was how each day of the Feast of Tabernacles started. But what you may not know about the Feast of Tabernacles was that even as the day began, 
with the water libation ceremony, it ended with the lamp lighting ceremony called the illumination of the temple. Every evening during the Festival of Tabernacles, just after the evening sacrifice and before sunset, priests entered the court of the women to light, listen, four giant oil-burning candelabra lampstands that had been placed there for this festival. Every year they dragged these candelabra out. Uh, I don't know where they stored them. Uh, they, were, they were pretty big. In fact, they were huge. Uh, historians tell us they were as tall as the walls of Solomon's temple. Those walls were 30 feet high. But each year before the feast started, these things were taken, dragged out, and put into the court of the women. And they were used for this lamp lighting ceremony, again called the illumination of the temple. Four giant oil burning candelabra lanterns. And again, they were, they were huge. They were huge. And there was a reason for that. Each candelabra contained several branches. Think of a menorah. I'm not sure they actually looked like the menorah, but the menorah is a single branched uh, lampstand with single a stem, and we had the six branches on either side, okay? I think of something like that, all right? Uh, one branch, multiple, excuse me, one stem, multiple branches on each of these um, candelabra, and on top of each of the branches, there was a, uh, a large bowl that contained oil. Now, you understand, so, some of the, the translations even translate the menorah as an candle stick holder, okay? That kind of, there was no wax in the temple. It was all oil-burning lamps, okay? Just so you know that. But uh, each of the branches of these candelabra, 30 feet high, each of them held a large bowl uh, into which were put uh, oil, and each containing a giant wick. And these wicks were made from the worn-out pants of the priest's garments. Everything the priest wore was holy unto God. So when they wore out, and they did, of course, uh, you didn't throw them away. What they did was they took them and they somehow tied them together to make these giant wicks that they were used for these festivals and also for the menorah uh, that was lit in the temple area. And uh, historians tell us that each candelabra, there was four of them, held roughly 65 gallons of oil, which meant the total amount of oil for the four burning lamps was about 260 gallons. Now, who do you think got the job of climbing up 30 feet on a ladder to fill these big bowls with oil? Low men on the totem pole, the newest priest, right? I don't know how much oil they took up, maybe if, if it was 10 gallons. Uh, that was six and a half trips to fill each candelabra. That was a, that was a lot of oil, right? And uh, one author put it this way, said, and I quote, The analogy of light, as with Jesus' earlier use of the metaphor of living water in chapter 7 was particularly relevant to the Feast of Tabernacles. The daily water-pouring ceremony had its nightly counterpart in a lamp-lighting ceremony. In the very court of the women where Jesus was speaking, four huge candelabra were lit, pushing light up into the night sky like a searchlight. So brilliant was their light that one ancient Jewish source declared there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did, not, that did not reflect their light. 
They served as a reminder of the pillar of fire by which God had guided Israel in the wilderness. The people, even the most dignified leaders, danced exuberantly around the candelabra through the, through the night, holding blazing torches in their hands and singing songs of praise. It was, against the, it was against the backdrop of that ceremony that Jesus made the stunning announcement that he is the true light of the world, unquote. Well, maybe not. Hold on to that thought. I, I agree with everything the author just said, except the timing of Jesus' statement. Hang on to that. Remember, and this is why the background of John 8 is so important, and this is why today most of this study is going to be background, uh, cultural, uh, historical background. Guys, if you don't have the context nailed down, you're never going to get a proper interpretation, and if you don't properly interpret Scripture, you'll never be able to properly apply it, right? That's why it's sometimes necessary to take a little extra time examining a passage and really laying the groundwork. What, what is the context saying? That we understand the cultural, uh, you know, idea of what was going on culturally, the context in which these things were spoken, and so on. Remember, again, the most important thing about this chapter, remember that these giant lamps that lit up the night sky with their brilliance were there to remind the Jewish people of the light of the Shekinah glory. It was the Shekinah glory, which was the presence of God in the form of a pillar by fire, excuse me, in the form of a pillar of fire by night. It was the Shekinah glory that was the light that lit their ancestors' way through the darkness for those 40 years. Nehemiah mentions this in Nehemiah 9, verse 12. He said, You led our ancestors by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night so that they could find their way. Keep that in mind. God, especially at night, you led our people with your light. The Shekinah glory was the presence of God, pillar of fire. You led us through the blackness, the darkness of the wilderness for those 40 years by your light. And so the Shekinah glory that had illuminated the tabernacle all those years in God's people in the wilderness, it eventually moved into Solomon's temple when Solomon dedicated the temple. Remember he had built the temple? So of course, the Shekinah glory sat above the, the tabernacle, this tent-like structure, all those years. Uh, then eventually the tabernacle was brought into the promised land, and that's where the Shekinah glory rested above that for many years. And then finally Solomon built a permanent structure called the temple. And while he's dedicating the temple to God, we read in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 1, he was praying to God, and after he finished praying, Solomon uh, finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord. Yahweh, the Shekinah, filled the temple. And God's glory filled the temple 
And literally, the Shekinah glory hovered above the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's throne on the earth, earth, the mercy seat, for centuries. The temple did not need any artificial light source. The light of God lit the whole thing up. And that's how it was for centuries. But unfortunately... Because God's people, the Jewish people, chose to live in darkness for many of those years, the darkness of idolatry and immorality, there came a point when the visible, tangible presence of the light of God, the Shekinah, departed from the temple. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 10. I'll just read you a few verses. You can read the whole chapter by yourself. But in Ezekiel chapter 10, remember now, uh, Ezekiel was an exilic prophet. He prophesied during the Babylonian captivity when God's people were exiled from the promised land. Of course, there was a few that remained in the land. But during this period, we read in Ezekiel 10 verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord, again, that's the reference to the Shekinah glory, rose up from above the cherubim in the Holy of Holies and went over to the door of the temple. The temple was filled with this cloud of glory and the courtyard glowed brightly with the glory of the Lord. The moving wings of the cherubim, now these are the actual cherubim that always attend the presence of God. Read the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 1. The moving wings of the cherubim sounded like the voice of God Almighty and could be heard even in the outer courtyard. Verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord moved out from the door of the temple and hovered above the cherubim. And I'll let you read it, but what's going on here is this. At one point, God's presence lifts up from the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he passes to the very door of the temple, stopping for just a minute as if to look back, heartbroken at what had once been. Turns, leaves the temple completely over the Kidron Valley, across the Mount of Olives, and out into the wilderness. At that point, there was no light in the temple. That was roughly 600 years before Christ. Which meant for 600 years the temple had been without the light of God. And so in the the place of the true light of God, the presence of God, the people had to put the artificial light of oil burning lamps and torches in the temple. Because the Shekinah glory, again, the true light had long since departed. But now, after 600 years, here stands Jesus, perhaps right in front of one of these giant candelabra, which if this was the eighth day, and I believe it was, the day after the Feast of Tabernacles officially ended, it was a high Sabbath, a special Sabbath. They didn't light the candelabra on that day. So for a week, 
people saw these giant oil-burning lamps giving light into the night like, like the Shekinah did in the wilderness. Now the light has gone out, just like the Shekinah left the temple at one point. But here is Jesus, possibly standing in front of one of these darkened candelabra and saying, I'm, I'm the light of the world. If you follow after me, you'll never stumble in darkness. I mean, can, do you understand why the context is important? You can't fully grasp the enormity, the impact of what he is saying if you don't see it in the light of Jewish culture and their history, right? I'm the light of the world. One pastor put it this way. He said, Jesus was saying, I'm back. You kind of had to go on 600 years. I'm back. And the pastor said, I suggest he made this declaration with a smile on his face and his arms outstretched as he offered himself to them. Again, John 8, 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Even as the presence of God in the form of a pillar of fire led his people through the darkness of the wilderness. Jesus, as the light of the world, wants to lead our lives through the darkness of this world, which is a spiritual wilderness, isn't it? John opened up his gospel by telling us that Jesus entered a world of darkness to light fallen man's way back to God. John 1 verse 9, Jesus Christ is the true light which gives light to every man, every woman coming into the world. Now listen, we're done. Let me just say this, it'll be close. Just how does Jesus, the Shekinah glory in human form, lead our lives today? I mean, what is the light that we are to follow? that keeps us on the right path as we walk through the darkness of this world all the way to our home in heaven. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I'm sure you know it. The psalmist said in Psalm 43, verse 3, Send out your light and your truth. Let them guide me. Let them lead me through the darkness of this world, is the idea, to your holy mountain, the place where you live. We cannot navigate our way through this dark wilderness, which is the devil's territory. He's the God of this world. There is no way man, woman, can find God without the light of his truth. And once we have that light and we've received Christ, we still need to walk in that light every day as believers. If we're going to make it all the way to heaven and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants. What is the light? Very simple. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Guys, when Jesus Christ said, I am the light of the world, listen, he who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Let me just say this. When he said this, I am the light of the world, he who follows me shall not walk in, not in darkness, in the darkness. There's a definite article in the Greek. 
before the chapter is done, you're going to see Jesus is going to contrast the light with the darkness, the kingdom of God with the kingdom of the devil, the children of God with the children of the devil. You have to get that. It will become very clear as we progress through the chapter. But Jesus is saying, if you walk, if you come to me, you follow me, you will walk, you'll have the light of life. And the darkness, the kingdom of this world, which Satan is in control of, will not be able to trip you up. But listen, when he said he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life, he was saying we need to follow him by believing in him. That's obvious. That's how you follow him, first of all. And then by committing our lives, listen, fully to him in full obedience to his word. The Greek word translated follows can be used in the general sense of the crowds that follow Jesus. But it can also refer, and I believe that's the way the Lord's using it here, can also refer to those who are true disciples and follow him. That's going to be obvious. He does uh, talk about true disciple later on in chapter 8. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Alethes, truly my disciples. You shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free. I believe he was talking about those disciples, true disciples, who follow him. In contrast to those who followed him as, you know, thrill seekers. <laughs> those who were, you know, Jesus junkies. Just following him for a spiritual life. There's a lot of Jesus junkies around today in the church. And churches are only too happy to cater to them. With all kinds of crazy services, emotional deals, where people come and they get all pumped up emotionally, right? And they're doing backflips off the pews and swinging from the chandeliers, right? We talk about those kind of folks, right? And uh, it's all about revving them up because they, they like that high, that emotional high, right? But as somebody has said, it's not, church is not about, or the Christian life is not about how high you jump. It's about how straight you walk when you land. And there's a lot of churches that don't give people anything in the way of feeding them that they can, they can ruminate on, spiritually speaking, the word all week long, to get the strength to live for God. It's all about a Sunday morning high, emotionally speaking. Jesus had junkies back then, too. Oh, they loved to follow him to see him work miracles, you know, and put the Pharisees down. I hate those guys. Get them, Lord. He was, a great, he was a great entertainment for them. He wasn't talking to them. He was talking to true disciples. And those who had made a full commitment to him, which involved denying self, taking up their cross and following Jesus, which would include complete submission to him as the word of God. Hebrews 4.12. He is the word of God. One commentator said this. He said, when the original setting of John 8, 12 is seen in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles, it is understood why the imagery of following the light is employed instead of receiving it or walking in it or the like. It's because this is what Israel did in the wilderness. The people followed the light as it led them from the land of slavery through the perilous wilderness to the promised land. 
the picture harmonizes perfectly with the call of Jesus to follow him as his true disciples. Following Jesus, the light of the world gives to the believer assurance of avoiding the parable, the perils and snares of the darkness and the promise of possessing the light of life. In other words, the light you're following as a believer will take you all the way into heaven, eternal life. The light of life, liberation from the realm of death for life in the kingdom of light. Since Jesus is the light of the world, or excuse me, the light of life, the promise carries the reality now in anticipation of its fullness in the glory of the kingdom to be revealed, end quote. So let me just end by saying this. This is all about following Jesus. He's the Shekinah glory, right? In human form. Just like your ancestors, he said to the Jewish people, followed the light of God, the Shekinah, in the, through the darkness of the wilderness, now you need to follow me. You need to follow me. You follow Jesus when you follow his word. But you won't let God's word guide your life through the dark world if you don't value it. That's, that's the problem. Oh, if we can only communicate to Christians. Forget the world. Yeah, we, if we can communicate that to the world, that would be great. I'm more concerned about those people who claim to be Christians who never read the Bible. They don't value it. Jesus referred to the Word of God as treasure. But remember, he said earlier in Matthew 6, 21, what, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, whatever you really value in life, will dominate your heart and control your life. There are many Christians who really don't have a heart to read God's word, to study it, and most importantly, to obey it. Because they really don't see the value in it. Oh, they want to go to heaven. They just don't value the Bible as being the wisdom, the word of God, that if they follow what God has said to the letter, every manufacturer includes an instruction manual. I'm talking about now some te technical piece of equipment, right? You buy yourself a new large screen TV. comes with a, a manual, instruction manual from the manufacturer. You need that, Okay. As you read it and follow it exactly, you'll get the most out of that piece of technology. Well, if I could put it that way, we are a piece of technology. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, we are more complicated than any piece of man-made hardware. What makes us think we can wing it? And our lives won't completely crash and burn. You need to be in God's instruction manual. And you need to follow it to the letter. Because God is saying, if you follow my instructions for life, you will have the most blessed life, the most prosperous life, spiritually speaking. You'll be used by me more than you can ever imagine if you follow what I have told you in my word. But a lot of Christians don't have a heart for the word.
again, they don't study it, they don't obey it, because they don't really see the value in it. They don't see it as the treasure it really is, and so they neglect it. They neglect it. Somebody has said, These hath God married, and no man can part. Dust on the Bible, and drought in the heart. Guys, you'll never benefit from the word of God if you don't appreciate and value it. Psalm 119, 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. Psalm 119, 127, therefore I love your commandments more than gold, yes, than fine gold. Guys, the word of God is valuable, but it will only benefit you if you treasure it. And it will only make your life rich if you obey it. I'll end with a quote of an old Baptist preacher I love, Vance Havner. What a great guy. He's with the Lord. And he's talking about how God has given us something as priceless as his word, yet we treat it like it's no big deal. He said, I, I have read that years ago in that part of Africa where diamonds in the rough were plentiful, a traveler chanced on boys playing in the street. Closer investigation revealed that they were playing marbles with diamonds. God forgive us today that we handle his treasures as though they were trifles and the coinage of the eternal as though it were play money. It is no time to play marbles with diamonds. End quote. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Truly, it is a treasure. And because we are to follow Christ in this journey we are on to our heavenly home. And Jesus told us that he is the word. If we follow the word, we'll never stumble in darkness. Lord, give us a renewed hunger for your word. Give us a renewed understanding of how valuable it is and how critical it is that we not read it where one it goes in one ear and out the other, but that we, you know, read it, study it, meditate on it, and by your grace live it. Give us grace to do that, Lord. Only then will we truly be in a place where you can use us for your glory and we can have the greatest life possible a life of serving our king father we thank you we ask all this in jesus precious name amen